Um, we're going to start in Ephesians 2 this morning, so if you want to start making your way over there, you can. And, um, and while you do, I want to tell you about a psychiatrist and an experience he had. Now, I don't know if you think you have a mundane job or kind of a strange job, but I think being a psychiatrist would be kind of an odd job at times. Uh, this, one, this one psychiatrist faced a man who thought he was dead. And essentially for hours he tried to convince this guy, you're not dead. And he's talking to this guy and, you know, all this stuff. And he finally kind of lands on this plan to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this guy know he's not dead. And here's how I'm going to do it. He thought it was foolproof. He said he, he gave the, the patient some medical books and asked him to read these sections that teach that uh, dead men do not bleed. And the man agreed to do so. So a few days go by, and this, this group, this, this, these two guys meet again. And uh, the psychiatrist, psychiatrist asked, what did you learn from the books I lent you? I'm convinced, the patient replied, it's perfectly clear that dead men don't bleed. At that point, the psychiatrist brought out a pin and pricked the patient, who started, who stared in shock as the blood began to flow. He looks down at his finger and says, my gosh, dead men do bleed. <laughs> and it goes to show this. We, we live in a culture, I think, spiritually, where take that same illustration and flip it around, where I think we live in a culture where a lot of people think they're alive spiritually. And if you get into a conversation and you talk about spiritual things, they would say, absolutely, I'm spiritually alive. And the Bible teaches, we talked about this last week, that the, the Bible teaches that we're dead or alive spiritually. Just like we're dead or alive physically. And there's a, there's a correlation there. But we live in a culture where I think most people feel pretty good about where they're at with things. People are, are convinced that they're alive when maybe they're really spiritually dead. Last week we looked at the new birth and kind of how it happens. We looked at who, why, and how and this week is kind of part two in that same stream of thought. It's kind of like a whole one message that's been broken up into, into two components. And what I want to focus on this week is this. Kind of the, the negative consequences of missing this new birth and what goes on with that. And the positive effects that go on if you catch this demand. Now we're in this series called Demanding. And, um, and this one that we're covering, we're starting with, this is the very first one that we're, that we're talking about because it's so foundational to everything else. In fact, what we'll do is we'll actually keep coming back to this throughout the series. We're not just going to speak on this one and leave it. But as we, as we look at this, this idea that Jesus demands you must be born again, what we see in that is this immense deep love of God in that command. And as you, as we study these demands, as we look at these demands, what we'll realize is this, man, the Christian life isn't easy. It's a really demanding kind of a life to, to, as Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And sometimes we don't like to preach those parts. I, I, I kidded around last week, I think, about the fact that, you know, a lot of what we'll study won't be life verses for people. These are hard sayings of Jesus that while he walked the earth, people, whole chunks of people left following him. And said, man, that is just too hard of a teaching. But it really does display the love of God to us. Now, when you hear that, some people think, yeah, let's get back to the love of God. And here's what I want to caution is that the love of God doesn't really always encompass kind of ooey-gooey, warm, fuzzy, hallmark-worthy thoughts and sayings that we like to think about. In fact, the love of God in some ways starts at a different place. In fact, to understand the, the depth of God's kindness, you, you actually need to understand the depth of your own corruption. This is an, an epitaph of a guy that I would call a great missionary. He'd be appalled that I just called him great. Um, 
Because his own, his own assessment of himself was this, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. And that was what William Carey wanted written on his tombstone. And he had a firm grasp of the fact that God chose him and allowed him to do some incredible missionary experiences, but he saw himself as nothing more than a worm. Now, we look at that, and I know that's confrontational and conflicting to our culture. Because we have a culture and a lot of daytime talk TV shows that want to build up the self, want to re, re, repair your self-esteem, and move forward from that point. And we're going to talk this morning about almost the opposite direction. Now, this demanding lifestyle that Jesus calls us to, it's not really that complicated. Children can understand it. But it's very controversial. And it got him so much in trouble that ultimately he was killed for this demanding lifestyle that, that he talks about. And the gospel is that way, isn't it? It's not a complicated message. The gospel isn't very difficult to understand intellectually, and yet it divides. It divides in your home. It divides when you get together with extended family. It divides in your workplace. And you can talk about spirituality, uh, self-actualization, all kinds of warm, fuzzy stuff. But the, the minute you bring up Jesus... And you start to talk about Jesus and him being the only way and him dying for sin and those kinds of issues. All of a sudden, there's some polarization that starts to happen. At least that's been my experience. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it says this. As for you, he's talking to Christians here, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Again, alive and dead language. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desire and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now let me just pause there for a minute. We took some time last week to, to, to look at... Um, at some of the things that we're called, and, and this was kind of the culmination one, right, is that we're, we're born in this state of being objects of wrath. And you look at that and say, well, that's kind of bummer news. Here's, here's, what, here's what the gospel is. The gospel is initially bad news in some ways. Let me point out how bad things are off for you. And now let me show you and let you understand the kindness of God and the depth of God's love to come and rescue you out of that. And sometimes, especially in the West, We've tried to preach a message that skips the first part and rushes right to the second part. Ray Comfort has this whole ministry where he looks at laws and, and breaking of the Ten Commandments. And he, he goes with this illustration that says if you tell people, hey, you're freed from the penalty and all this and that, but they never understood what they were guilty of in the first place, it's meaningless to them. It's like being handed the, the, the uh, you know, keys to something or a gift card to something that, that's a piece of paper. You have no idea what it means. And that's what the gospel is if we preach one half and not the other. Moving along, verses, uh, starting in verse 4, it says this. But because of his great love, there it is, for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The idea that what it has been done for us is this whole message of grace. And as we go along in this demanding series, here's what I'm, here's what I'm praying for us as a church and a congregation to really understand. I went back and forth with that little subtitle under the word demanding. And, and one of them that, um, the one I landed on was talking about followership because it's just normal Christian, Christian discipleship, what it means to be a Christian. And it's a demanding lifestyle. But what I also wanted to communicate was this idea that um, we're called to something totally impossible. Some of you, this is, this is an easy kind of Christian thing to, to nod your head at. And others of you in this room, if I make these statements, to love your enemies this morning. I mean really love your enemies. Some of us can nod because we're not in conflict with someone. We don't feel like we have an enemy right now. We go, that's just really right on. You go, preacher. And some of us in this room go... Man, not on your life. Never, never will I love that person. And we can't, we can't even fathom getting close to remotely liking the person. And the reality is, is that it's, it's impossible to love your enemy. It's impossible to die to yourself. It's impossible to not go after the cravings of your sinful flesh apart from God's regenerating work in us. So we're called to live, in essence, the impossible life. And yet, because of the God's spirit, we're able to walk in newness of life. Let me just, uh, let me just throw this out to you. What if, what if many people are in a fixed state of denial? They think life is one way. They think spirituality is one way. And they're wrong. They're flat out wrong. What if some of them are sitting in our church right now? What if some of them are right here in this room with us? I want to share with you kind of two influences that studied, that kind of influenced my study this week. One was um, Monday, I decided to go back and listen to this sermon that I have on my iPod. And it's really fun um, to just kind of blast this, especially when the Jeep is, you know, I've got the Jeep, no top, no doors. And I'm just kind of blasting this at, at stoplights. It's a, it's, a, it's a message that was preached July 8th, 1741 in Connecticut by a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And the title of it is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. There's nothing like pumping that in your Jeep when you're sitting at a stoplight. You're just like, I mean, Jonathan Edwards is going off in this sermon. And it was said that in his church, people in his pews were like clinging to the pew in front of them for fear of being dragged into hell at that very moment. Here's how intense this is. You can go on. You can read the whole thing online. I think you can actually listen to it online for free, too. If not, it's on iTunes for a couple bucks. Um, not a great bedtime story for the kids, but um, it's, it's really powerful to just listen to that and, and, and be reminded of a, a culture and a season of time in America that was a lot different from ours right now, and yet not so different. You know what Jonathan Edwards sensed? He sensed spiritual decline all around him. And so he knew that there was urgency that was needed, and there was imagery that was needed that needed to wake people up out of their slumber. Wake people up from, from their fixed state of denial. And so he spoke with passion and drove the point home. He also, he also prayed for spiritual awakening. Let me just give a small quote from this, this, um, this message. All wicked men's pains and contrivance, which they use to escape hell, 
while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men, do not secure from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself with what he has done in what he is doing now and in what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes will not fail. He goes on to say this, but the foolish children of men are miserably deluded. They trust to nothing but a shadow. It's pretty much that for about 40 minutes. That's what, that's what sinners in the hands of an angry God is all about. And it's this wake-up call to his church. And I can just envision himself saying, man, I'm going to give an account for how I shepherded this church. And I want to make sure that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords doesn't look at me and say, why on earth did you never tell them? Why on earth did you not warn them of the pending wrath that's coming even from within the church? Why did you let them just sleep and slumber while they were on their way to hell? I'm not sure why he wrote it, but that's what I would, I would venture to guess. So, mind you, that's Monday. Okay, I kind of just listened to that kind of as just a refresher. I've listened to that several times. But, but I, I wanted to listen to that. And part of it was to say, God, I, I want our congregation to get this new birth. It's literally life or death. Now, God just has a way of doing this in my life over and over and over again, such that it can't be coincidence and such that it regenerates my faith all the time. But it just so happens, I think it was Monday in my quiet time or Tuesday at the latest, that a part of my quiet time was reading from the prophet Isaiah chapters 1 through about 4. And the prophet Isaiah came to warn people of God's pending anger and wrath at sin. And as we'll see in just a moment, he warned religious, self-righteous people, and he warned the blatantly unrighteous people. And I just thought, man, that is, that is a powerful read on the heels of sinners in the hands of an angry God. And in light of wanting to teach the new birth and the importance of getting this first step right and not overlooking it, because it would be to our own demise. Let me give you basically two camps of dead people that are in need of life, Okay. This is in your notes. You can follow along with this a little bit. But these are, these are two camps that I would say the, the, the Bible shows and talks about over and over that are, that are dead and they're in need of life. And maybe like Jonathan Edwards says, they would flatter themselves as to why they wouldn't go to hell. And it would be all any number of reasons. But here they are. Camp one is those who are either enthralled or entrapped by sin in the flesh. Here's what I mean by this person. This is the person that rejects Christ. This is a pagan or a self-proclaimed heathen or a proud sinner. It's, it's that person who mocks the Bible and mocks the church and says, man, I don't have any need for, for spiritual things. Their lives may be going well. Their lives may be going terrible. But they are proudly anti-church and anti-God. I thought about Hollywood. You know, and on any given night in Hollywood, both of these camps exist. One is those who are enthralled by sin. And people in Hollywood, someone in Hollywood's having a lot of fun. There's a lot of fun going on on any given night in Hollywood. And what happens is they tend to kind of turn the lens toward, you know, 20-somethings who have unlimited amounts of, you know, kind of time and money. And here's what they're doing with it. And much of America looks, looks at it with wide-eyed wonder saying, man, I wish, I wish I could party like that. That looks like a great time. 
where, where I happen to just know from seeing it firsthand, but a couple blocks over in Hollywood, on any given night, every single night, are those whose lives are going utterly terrible and miserable, and they would tell you as such, and they are entrapped by sin. They're in its snare, and they can't possibly get out. And it doesn't look even remotely fun. And if the, if the cameras were there, if the tabloids took pictures of that, we'd be repulsed by it and say, man, I don't want to see that. We live in a culture that, that sure seems to, to highlight the fun of sin and the glamour of sin and, the, and the, the glitz of it without seeing the other side. But both sides are there. So we know these people. Some of us were and maybe are these people enthralled by sin or entrapped by sin, but either way, kind of blatantly in sin and in the flesh. That's camp one. That's what I would call the, the unrighteous pers- person. And the, un- the unrighteous person, if you were to meet either of those two people two blocks away in Hollywood, the message would be this. You must repent of your despicable behavior. This putrid lifestyle that you are living is not how God created you. It's not what God intended for you. And you're offending a holy God. Please spare yourself from the wrath to come. And I'll show you the way of rescue. That's the message to the unrighteous. Camp two is, is what I would call kind of the, the lifestyle without the life. There's a certain lifestyle to a church person. People hear I'm a pastor and they immediately make a thousand assumptions about me. Well, you sure dress or don't dress like a pastor. You sure talk or don't talk like a pastor. Um, you must think this way. You must vote that way. You must do this or not do this as a pastor. Oh, you would certainly like this book or that movie or this place because you're a pastor. And all kinds of things get, get attached to that. And what you discover is this. There is, there is much about being a Christian in America and even around the world that is, that is lifestyle, right? And it's, it's just, kind of, just kind of tacked on things that we accumulate and say this is what it means to be a Christian. Here's a good test. If your life only needs God's rules and not God, then you're really dead in your sin. Jesus' message to you might come along and say, you're a shiny coffin. You're, in a, you're a whitewashed tomb. You're a really good-looking corpse. But you're dead. All this external stuff that you've done, all these rules that you keep, all this you know, kind of checklist that, that you've nailed, it's all for naught. Now, this is a person, I, I spoke to someone this last week, and I'm fairly convinced, I'm not God, and I'm so thankful it's not my job is to go around judging and figuring this out, but you kind of get a sense from people. I'm pretty convinced this person wasn't a Christian. But this kind of person, this lifestyle without the life, speaks well of Christ often. They'll, they'll, even, they'll even lift up praise to Christ and give him a pseudo form of, of honor. Now, it just so happens that they'll honor all kinds of other kind of religious good people too and quasi-good you know, good religious people and terrible religious people. I mean, he'll, you know, this, this, this person will just kind of spin this stuff. They might call Jesus Lord. They might sing praise songs. They might have an impeccable record in ministry. I was a Sunday school teacher for 14 years. I was at every single church workday. I've been on 39 short-term missions trips, whatever it might be. All of that is external and could be hugely wonderful and positive. This kind of person celebrates the articles, I mean, the artifacts of church. For instance, a Bible and kind of the, the parameters that are there, what church they go to and, and what church they don't go to, while ignoring the internal motives in life that presents, that, that, that is present with the true children of God. 
This person works hard to ensure that favor of God is, is obtained, maintained, and seen by everyone that they come in contact with. Kind of always flashing their credentials and whatnot. And this person takes pleasure in, in fraternizing, basically, with those in this good camp like him and pointing out those who aren't in this camp with him and saying, man, so glad we're not in that camp over there. They wear jeans to church. You know, whatever it might be. And, and they, just, they, just kind of, they just kind of close it in like this. And this can take so many different forms. But this is the person, basically, who is, I would say, righteous in some way, shape, and form. And I think if Jesus came across them, he would ask them, or he would tell them, or if it was us, Jesus and us coming to them, the message should be this. You must repent of your self-made righteousness. It's not what God seeks. It's not what he wants. You must repent and turn from your impeccably prideful track record and throw yourself before the God of the universe and cry out mercy. Let me show you the way of rescue. Let me show you the path of rescue from that. To put it simply, God calls sinners to repent of their unrighteousness and the religious of their righteousness. Both are the same. Our very best and our very worst are exactly the same to a holy God. And that's hard for us to grasp sometimes. It's a little bit like saying when I was a kid and just wrestling with this. You mean to tell me that this sin and this sin are equally bad? They're equally an affront to God, yes. And we think in ourselves, we kind of categorize ourselves, well, I'm not that person. I haven't been entrapped that way. In fact, I'm doing pretty good. Man, you might be in the most kind of danger that there is. Because at least the person sleeping in the gutter and sleeping around and doing all kinds of junk knows blatantly that they're not being lulled into kind of a false sense of security. So here are kind of the the negative consequences of the new birth. And here's what I mean by a negative consequence of the new birth. I mean the negative consequences that accompany your life and mine if we miss the new birth. That's what I'm talking about. Now, um, on your cover of your bulletin this morning... um, is, is a picture of a, of a broken egg. And I, I, use that, I use that illustration because of this. You kind of take this right here. This is an, this is an eggshell that um, I pulled out of our uh, insincorator, which is one of the coolest titles for a garbage disposal uh, that we have in our home. And I pulled it out. And I'm rinsing it out a little bit. My wife's like, what on earth are you doing? And I'm like, don't even ask. Um, but this is an eggshell, and, and it's, a, it's a great representation. You know, as I kind of looked at it and thought about it this week, I put it on our bulletin cover, because Jesus has this whole conversation with Nicodemus, and we looked at this last week, and, and the, the, the culmination of that was this. We had one of the most put-together eggshells that you've ever met. It was shiny and rinsed off and clean, and probably a lot of the cracks were just filled in, and it was hard to, it was hard to see, maybe with the naked eye from far away, the state of Nicodemus. But Jesus came along and, and he illustrated uh, this whole idea of new birth and this doctrine of regeneration by stating it this way. You must be born again. And Nicodemus just flies into a weird tailspin in his mind. He's like, you're talking about me going back into my mother's womb. You know, what is that? It's the smartest chicken you know and telling them, you know, you must be born again. He's like, back in there? No. You know, he doesn't want to go back in the shell. And to look at this shell, for instance, and to, and to realize that for this to be for this to be made whole, it doesn't need some touch-up. 
It needs, it needs a whole new kind of supernatural deal. I can't possibly make this eggshell come back together. Right? Humpty Dumpty. We kind of learned that long ago. Let me just, let me just leave that for you right there. You can, you can look and ponder the eggshell for a little while while we talk. Here's, here's three negative consequences to the new birth, missing the new birth. One is this, that not heeding this demand is to fail at every single demand that God makes on our life. So if you miss this one and you go on to steps two through 39 or whatever might be out there, you've, you've already failed. It is a, it is a genuine prerequisite for everything else that, that will follow. And so, and so if you find yourself way down this road and you go, man, this, this new life that's supposed to be freeing and all this fruit of the spirit, I don't have any of it. Where is it? If anything, it feels just as binding as my life of sin that I was supposedly rescued out of. Maybe you never really believed on a true gospel. Maybe you never followed this first demand that you be born again. Not just start attending church, not just start reading your Bible, not just start praying, not just start walking with Christians, not just start giving up this past life of sin. And that's revolutionary, revolutionary for people today as much as it was then. To basically move on without this first one leads to either, either law living, you know, rule keeping and trying to do it on your own or flesh living. I can't possibly do that. That's way too stinking hard. I'm just going to go back to living in the flesh. Both of which, much of Romans, kind of negates and says, don't do any of that. Here's the second consequence. The second consequence is that you remain in your natural state. We already talked about this last week. Here's your natural state. Sinful from birth. Children of wrath. Dead in our sins. Moving on to any other command is bandaging up a dead body. I don't see Jim Cook here this morning, but yesterday we had a good time celebrating his birthday with, uh, with their family a little bit. And he's a fireman. Now imagine a fireman walking up and, you know, and seeing a person unconscious laying there and immediately starting to, starting to, to bandage parts of his body up and, and treat things and setting bones and, you know, and making sure the person's body temperature is going to be warm so he starts to cover him without ever covering, uh, the way I learned it is the ABCs of, of first aid. And, um, I'm going to pick on Chris Shelley. Chris Shelley, what are the, what are the ABCs of first aid? Okay, so some of you are like, ABCs, what? What? Okay, so that, thank you. That's all I'm trying to say. We're all dismissed. Let's close in the song. That's it. Thank you. I mean, if, if, if the person's airway is blocked, if they're not breathing and there's no blood flow, forget about the rest. It's nonsense. And yet sometimes we approach the spiritual life this way. We jump right into a community group because we think, well, that's what Christians do. And guess what? If you miss a week, you wonder if God's happy with you. What happens if you just don't click with the leader and it's kind of a struggle and inside you have, you know, struggles to, to, to be there every week. So you try a different one. What if you do this? What if you do that? So what happens is we have insecure Christians who, who probably aren't even really Christians, but, but they're wondering constantly, where do I stand in the face of, of my father? What kind of home would I lead if any of my five kids felt that way on a weekly basis? And I wonder if I'm, if I'm dad's son today. It's been a rough week. Man, that's no way for life, and that's not the way God designed it. And that's a very immoral, dysfunctional family. So you miss this one. You're bandaging up a dead body. Here's the third thing. 
You suffer the punishment and consequences of our sin, which is hell. Eternal separation from a holy, just, and loving God. You aren't breathing. You aren't alive. You remain in this dead state and not alive. Kingdom of darkness, not in the kingdom of light. So I'm sweeping through these pretty quick, but these are massive consequences to missing this first demand. Remember what we said last week? You can't accomplish this demand on your own. The very starting point of this whole deal is God demands something of us that we can't accomplish. I did not wake up one day super spiritual and go, okay, Lord, I'm going to see it today. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, but God initiated and I got to respond and participate. And it was this miracle of new life that that went on. But God is the one that, that initiates it. I said before that the gospel is temporarily bad news, and that's why so many people reject it. I don't want to go to church. I already know how bad I am. I've heard that. I've heard that exact comment several times over. And I go, man, that, that's, that's the temporary bad news, and it's real. The eternal good news is that that's been covered. The eggshell gets to be made whole again. Life is given to you and offered to you. I put this in your, in your notes because I wanted you to see it. But enter into this, this mess that we're talking about, Jesus Christ, coming in the flesh. And John 1 is a great place to read about that. John 1 forces this. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Skipping down to verse 12, it says that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. You know what's great about that passage? Right in that one verse, this is done several times over, but right in that one verse is both God's will. Who willed it? Not a husband or someone else's decision, but born of God. And who participates in it? It's those who received him, those who believed in his name. There's the two sides of it. How about moving on to kind of the the positive effects of the new birth? Excuse me. Um, kind of to put it a different way, what gifts accompany the, 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 the new birth? Gift one is this. It's the, the key to the kingdom is given. And I didn't say keys plural, I said key. And in this one key, mysteries are unlocked, truths are unlocked, realities are unlocked, and rewards are unlocked. And once again, if you miss this key, you don't get it. Get this key and you get all these other keys. John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about how to see the kingdom of God, how to enter the kingdom of God. And then it's interesting to look over in Matthew chapter 6, and he says this, seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. This one key is it. You seek after this, all these other things will, will kind of take care of themselves. Now, in that particular context, Context, he was talking about anxiety and worry about stuff of life. Food, clothing, bills, cars, uh, dead batteries, all that kind of good stuff. Okay? He, he, he's, he's, he's talking about worry, but it, it really applies to kind of the spiritual life. That as Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It is the key that unlocks all the mysteries of, of other things. To kind of see it visually, it's this. This one key opens up the drawer that's got... A ton more keys in it. And what happens is, is, is if we go try and, and unlock these other things without this first key, we don't understand it. 
In fact, in fact, it's impossible. Jesus calls us to live the impossible life, but it all starts with him being in us and with us and empowering us. And if we don't get that first part, we can't go live the impossible life. It's impossible. So this one key is given to you when we are born again. This is so important that we get this right because so much rests on this truth. Let me just throw a few things out to you. In your community groups, you could, you could expand this list tenfold. But worship, growth in holiness, security in the spiritual battle, confidence before the Lord, all hinge on whether or not one is born again. Parenting, marriage and family issues, demands of life within the home, that all hinges on this, on this notion of born again. Don't try to live like a Christian. Don't try to live the Christ-like lifestyle in the home without making sure you're born again. Otherwise, you're just trying to put principles in place. You buy 10 more books on it, and you still can't get along with that person you share a breakfast table with. You must be born again. How about your passions, your pursuits, your desires? Do you know that God makes demands on all of those, but they're nonsense and impossible without being born again? How about social justice issues, politics, the environment? I love to take people and hear from people and their passion to ease people's comfort in this life, to take to take resources and say, let's not hoard them all here. Let's spread them around. I love that and, 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 and I'm challenged by that. But I think to myself, man, if you'd, give them, if you'd give them peace and comfort on this earth for 70 years, wouldn't you care about their eternal, eternal destiny as well? I mean, if you're so concerned about them not living in the slums of Calcutta, in the slums of downtown San Jose, unschooled and unclothed in Argentina... I mean, I mean, wouldn't it count to say, yes, I want to ease that suffering, but I want to ease the eternal suffering that's to come because they're children of wrath. And, and there's those who go the opposite way. And they, all they ever want to do is talk about these other things way out here kind of in the future. Never once lifting a finger to ease comfort and suffering and meet needs around them. And you know what? Both extremes are unbiblical. You know what Jesus did? Constantly he did both. Constantly he went around meeting tangible, physical needs, sharing his time, sharing his resources, and yet he wouldn't leave it at that. He wasn't a social justice organization trying to create heaven on earth, and that's just, the, that's just what needs to happen. He always brought in the spiritual. So that's, that's our model, is to do both. But it's all tied to being born again. To do all that stuff without being born again sours. Finally, community life, on the job, all the relationships you have, maybe outside the home, in the church, all of that. These all hinge on this important key of being born again. None are possible, none are even spiritually understood without the new birth. Everything is tied to this idea of, re- of regeneration. Now, it must be old guy quoting week because um, this handsome fellow is, um, is another guy that I, I spent a little bit of time reading. is a guy by the name of Martin Luther. And, um, and he, was, he was commenting on, on Galatians, and I want to read for you a, a little segment um, that, that jumped out to me. He says this, talking about the importance of, he's using the term the gospel, but it's this, it's this foundational starting point, you must be born again. Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teacheth me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ the Son of God hath done for me. To wit, that's a cool phrase I'm going to try to work in more often. To wit, 
um, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Do you get that? Don't move on to other godliness issues without really firmly understanding what you believe about this and what's true about this. He goes on to say this, Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Welcome to community groups. I mean, that's, that's, really, that's really what ought to happen. Can, can that happen here? It's one guy talking to a bunch of people, whether it's me or someone else. Yeah, we get some time after. Yeah, we get some time around the, you know, the, the table on a first Sunday of the month. But that's a part of why community groups are so incredibly vital to this. We can't just come and bring this once a week to this. This has to be preached over and over and over in the home. Family priests preach this to your home. Preach this to yourself. Now, as elders and as shepherds and as community group under shepherds, you know what we're doing? We're all about this. Public declaration like we're doing and house-to-house instruction, going through and just, and just speaking some things. In my office this week, God aligned an impromptu meeting that was totally from him. It wasn't in my schedule, but it was in God's schedule. And as we're talking, we're talking about all this weird sin stuff over here. And I had to just stop things and say, I want to hear what is it, what hope do you have right now? Today, if you were to die before a perfect and holy God. And you know what he did? He proclaimed Jesus Christ to me. I said, what about Jesus Christ to me? And there was an instruction. There was a Q&A instruction one-on-one right then and there. And I wanted to hear from his own mouth a profession of faith. And I said, good on you, brother. That's exactly what I needed to hear. Now, you just spit it out to me. I'm going to preach it back to you. That's where we go with this. That's kind of the, the one-on-one instruction that, that needs to continue to go on. The house-to-house meeting continually that needs to go on. That's what our community groups are all about. This is why we continue to preach basically the same message. As I said, it's the, it's the heart of, of, our, of our community groups. Not to find all the right answers, although we're going to dig in here. We're going to say, man, we just kind of skim the, 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 the surface of this. Let's dive in a little bit deeper. But we're not looking for all the best pragmatic advice and, and, um, and all the right answers, kind of biblically or theologically, and put them all into neat categories. That's not what that's, not what that's about. What it's about is coming back to this, to this truth. And isn't it powerful, brothers and sisters, you've experienced this, to have a... A, a person who loves you come along and just preach the good news to you. Say, brother, you're out from condemnation because of Jesus Christ. And here, here I, I have to stop you in sin because you're, you're sitting here condemning yourself. And that's why Jesus died. Aren't you thankful for that? And it just kind of, just kind of lifts you out from your circumstance. You say, thank you, I needed to hear that. I needed to hear the gospel preached to me today. Continue to do that to each other. If you have to, like Martin Luther says, just beat it into your head. Beat it into your brother's head. That's why big Bibles are good. Uh, here's the second thing. Man, we could go on for... Uh, there's so many things that, 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 that we could say here, but I'm just going to offer you these two things. One is that understanding the new birth, the, the gift given that accompanies the new birth, is this key that unlocks all these other things. And the second thing is that you're made brand new. 
We don't have time to turn there, but just write down 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, so many people grab the old is gone, the new has come for their slogan. That is a Christian slogan through and through. It's the best slogan for a Christian. It, it, it could be kind of the gospel in summary. The old is gone, the new has come. That's, that's what it's all about. People talk about this sometimes. If you were to die tonight, do you know that you'd go to heaven? Now, I've, I don't think that's anything wrong with that question, and I've asked that question to people, but I think my experience has been a lot more like that of Jonathan Edwards, where people flatter themselves with all kinds of things, and people talk about all kinds of, of ways and, and, and reasons why they should be let into heaven. Here's maybe some better questions, <coughs> not even for the person out there, but for my own heart. Does what you believe have any impact on the way that you live? Does what you believe have any impact on the way that you live? That's a pretty good question. As I read through the scriptures, that's a, that's a, that's a good test offered to us. It's not just some kind of spiritual, you know, morphing thing over here, but the flesh counts for nothing. That's a good question to ask and to think about. Is there anything natural in you that's gone? The old is gone. I hope that in your conversion experience, you can testify to hard and fast factual things that used to be present in your life, and they're gone. And that those around you would say, yeah, I can attest to that. I knew the guy before he was saved. That's gone from his life. It's incredible. That's an exciting thing to see. How about this? What power do you have? I hope, I hope your conversion, your, your, your new birth experience began to show you power over sin and power to love people and power in all kinds of spiritual ways and areas that you never had before. Those are great things. Those impact our life. Here's the second question you might want to ask yourself is, is this. What signs of life exist in your life? What are the signs of life that are, that are pouring out from you? The Bible uses fruit terms, of course, and there's a crop that kind of comes when the seed of faith is planted and it takes root and it grows up and it produces something. When you're squeezed, what comes out of you? On a week, what's, you know, on a given week, what kinds of traits and characteristics would you be known for? Because that's just the kind of person that's oozing out from you. From out of the heart, a man and woman speak. What kind of words flow out of your mouth? What are you talking about, thinking about, discussing, challenging people on? These are all good markers for signs of life. I want to close this morning by having you turn to 2 Peter, all the way in the back of the Bible. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, there's some great comments here about the new birth. <coughs> in 2 Peter chapter 1 says this, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us 
his very great and precious promises so that through them, catch this, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. I want to wrap this kind of full circle from last week. Remember last week, what we talked about was this. Nicodemus was close to Jesus in proximity. Nicodemus gave verbal praise to Jesus uh, for the signs he did. He correctly attributed the power to Jesus. Nicodemus had seen signs and wonders, and yet all of that wasn't enough. It's not enough to see those things. It's not enough to give proper credit where credit is due in those things. You must participate in the divine nature. It's not enough to have someone close to you participate in the, in the, in the divine nature. That means as godly of a parent as you might be, you need to be on your knees praying and begging on God's behalf that, that he will open their eyes and ears to the gospel, to these precious promises that, that God's given to us. Because it's not bloodline. We know that for sure. We are made new by participating, not observing, but by participating in this divine nature. We are regenerated by participating in this divine nature. And it goes on to say in Second Peter here that we escape corruption by participating in this divine nature. We've already covered what happens if you jump to all those things without participating in the divine nature. So the question left for you is, as Chris said, are you breathing? Are you participating in the divine nature? Band, I want to invite you to come on up. We're going to close with a couple of songs. One is Give Us Clean Hands. And it's a, it's a song. It's a, it's a prayer of, of repentance, really. And maybe some in this room need to repent. Maybe some in this room need to confess. Man, I've never really heard this before. Let me close by, by using two illustrations. The first from John 11 is Lazarus and Jesus calling him, Come forth, come out. That's what he says to a grave. And what does Lazarus do? Participates in the divine nature. He comes walking out of the tomb. The Father wills it. We know that Jesus only does and speaks what the Father wills. So Jesus speaks. That's the notion that the word of God brings life. Preaching the gospel brings life. As foolish as it may seem to you on the surface, that's the power of God at work. The spirit of life fills Lazarus. Lazarus responds to and obeys Jesus, and he participates in the divine nature, escaping corruption and death by walking forth. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to close the service. Some of us in this room are going to go get some lunch, and we're going to participate in a baptism class. The baptism is something that God gave to us as a living picture of salvation. It's a living picture of the gospel. Going into the water is identifying with the death of Jesus. Going under the water is identifying with the burial of Jesus. Coming out of the water is identifying with the resurrection of Jesus. And walking away from that, we realize that we're dead to sin, to human goodness, to ability to save us, and that we're alive to God and His goodness and His uttermost capability of saving and sustaining us the rest of our lives. And that's a really, really powerful picture. In a couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to celebrate baptisms going on behind me. If you need to get baptized, if you need to understand more what baptism is about, and you didn't have this in your plans, change your plans. This is huge. 
come and you know what we're going to do? We're going to read a lot of scripture. We're not going to hear what this church has to say about baptism and all of our list of rules. We're only a three-year-old church. We haven't accumulated a bunch of junk yet. We're going to look at the Bible. There's a novel thought. We're just going to see what the Bible has to say about baptism and about new life and about rebirth. So you're invited to come to that. Some of you in this room may have may uh, understand that you've never made this profession of faith. You've never stepped across the line. You've never participated in this. You've never believed. Let me just invite you as I pray right now to this. You can, this morning, participate in the divine nature. It can happen right where you're sitting. We don't even have a center aisle this morning. We've blocked it off. But it's not about walking an aisle, filling out a card, saying a certain specific prayer. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes with me. God, we sang a song earlier that says that you run to our hearts, God. You, you, you run to save those, God, who would believe and would respond. You have initiated in people in this room a spiritual work, God, that you are going to see fit to complete. God, you have given us this picture of coming and dwelling with us and making your home inside of us. Not dwelling in a temple, not dwelling in a place of worship, not dwelling in an object, but God choosing to take us and make us the temple. And Father, we're, we're humbled by that truth. We're mystified by that truth, God. And yet by faith we believe it. That I would pray for those today who've been carrying the burden of trying to work their way into this life and it's become lifestyle without the life. I pray, God, they would understand and feed on the truth that you say, come to me. Those of you who are, who are heavy burdened and you will find rest. And God, I pray that you would draw this morning those who need to speak with someone, those who need to speak with you during these next couple of songs. Communicate a prayer of repentance. Communicate, Lord, a sense of trying to hide the broken eggshell of their life. To fall at your feet and to cry mercy. And to just trust and believe on the completed work of you, Jesus, on the cross, in the grave, out of the grave, on your throne, and coming again. We're awed and powerful, uh, powerfully impacted by this. And as we sing once again in a little bit, God, we want to continue to think and dwell on these truths. We love you. Amen.